You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. It's good to be back with you, as always, Prashant. Um, this week, we're going to do a little bit of a different tack on on the Asia Geopolitics podcast. I know we usually respond directly to the news cycle, but I wanted to sort of take a step back and do a podcast on a functional topic area, uh, this time on trade in the Asia-Pacific region. That's been hot uh, with um, news uh, not too long ago, especially that India had formally decided that it will now be sitting out its participation in the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. But I also thought this would be a good opportunity to take stock of the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, CPTPP, the successor agreement to the Trans-Pacific Partnership after the United States departure. That agreement is now in force with uh, seven out of the 11 signatories observing tariff reductions there. And also, of course, we'll talk a little bit about the perennial dynamics in the U.S.-China trade war. Um, So I think we'll go in that order, Prashant. So to kick us off, India's decision on RCEP. I mean, I personally didn't find it to be too surprising that New Delhi decided to sit out its participation in this major multilateral trade deal. Uh, You know, it brings together 16 countries. It's often described in the media as China-led, but it's very much an ASEAN-centered process, Uh, RCEP. By definition, is ASEAN plus ASEAN's FTA partners trying to bring together um, all of these countries into a broader multilateral framework. India was slated to be the third largest economy in RCEP uh, after uh, China and Japan, but New Delhi has decided to sit out the agreement. Uh, so, from where you're sitting, Prashant, uh, what do you what do you make of this decision in terms of India's you know act east policy, its broader uh, relationship economically with countries to its eastern periphery, certainly in Southeast Asia, but also around the region? How do you how do you view this in terms of uh, New Delhi's uh, geopolitical position? Yeah, I mean, I think as you noted, it, it it's not uh, surprising that we saw this, but nonetheless, it it is it doesn't look good optics wise for for New Delhi's uh, regional engagement, right? So, I mean, the idea that um, you know India would be the stumbling block for trade negotiations is something that um, ASEAN countries are are quite familiar with, uh, and Asian countries more generally. So, even when uh, the ASEAN India Free Trade Agreement was negotiated, for example. Um, it took a long time uh, for it for negotiations to actually be concluded, and and there were negotiators that had actually been, you know, scarred by 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 those uh, negotiations and talks. So, the fact that we saw this uh, wasn't that surprising. And there was also a lot of discussion. I think you know, even even as early as last year about this idea of RCEP minus one, so that you know the rest of the countries would go forward and. Depending on whether um, these countries would be able to address India's grievances or not, India might still be part of the RCEP or it might not be part of RCEP. So that part wasn't surprising. I mean, the part where it it, it sort of doesn't look good for India is, as you pointed out, I mean, India has uh, noted that it wants to sort of play a broader role in, in the Asia Pacific and particularly in Southeast Asia with this idea of uh, the Act East policy. So we've seen a lot of developments on the security side and, and geopolitically. Um, but the fact that, um, you know, this economic side continues to be troubled, uh, RCEP is, after all, as you said, you know, it's an ASEAN-centric agreement. It was originally meant to be a harmonization of various agreements that ASEAN signed with various countries, including India. So the fact that India is the holdout here, um, you know, doesn't reflect well on India, but it also doesn't say a lot uh, for Southeast Asia looking to engage all these various countries it just reinforces the fact that India is a lot harder to engage on in terms of economic issues, I would say. 
Yeah. And I think it's important to, you know, maybe delve a little bit into why India decided to sit out the RCEP negotiations. Uh, so I know, I, I know that, you know, trade deals are a little bit of an arcane area. So for podcast listeners, just briefly uh, to go a little bit deeper into RCEP, RCEP primarily focuses on the reduction of tariff barriers. Um, and India has been running a deficit with 11 of the RCEP negotiating countries. And uh, that's been a major point for New Delhi, especially the deficit with China, which was a major focus of the recent bilateral uh, Modi and Xi Jinping meeting, uh, the informal summit that took place between the two sides in South India. With that said, I think I think part of what's being left out of the RCEP debate and at least some of the international commentary, um, you know, I, I thought India should have signed on to RCEP, but I at least understand where the Modi government is coming for, from here. I suspect the domestic politics angle here is actually doing quite a lot of work. Uh, so this summer, uh, you know, India released um, shortly after the election, uh, after um, Modi and the BJP won a uh, unparalleled large mandate and you know the largest in 30 years. Uh, the Indian Ministry of Statistics released uh, GDP estimates, which showed pretty pretty dismal figures. Uh, you know, GDP growth of just five percent, the lowest growth since the first quarter of 2012 2013. Um, this, you know. Basically, the point is that India's economy is running into headwinds right now, um, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of sort of bitter pills of reform that Modi, while you know he came into power in 2014 on some optimism that he would be a prime minister to implement some of the reforms that other Indian prime ministers had not, primarily due to domestic political reasons, he still hasn't done that. And the way that the the refusal to join RCEP is being presented to the Indian public, I think, is quite interesting by the BJP. You know, Modi is sort of justifying his decision as saying that he's protecting India's poor. Uh, there's concerns that if if India were to join RCEP and reduce tariff barriers, that it would get flooded. Indian markets would get flooded with cheap Chinese goods, goods from other parts of Asia. Uh, but then, you know, critics, including uh, um, domestic Indian critics, are pointing out that this, in a way, is also an acknowledgement that the Indian economy is simply not ready to compete in Asia. Um, and that's been sort of a long-term concern uh, from those who want to see India better integrate itself into uh, into um, trade and supply chains in Asia more broadly. Uh, New Delhi has not had a good record on this. There's also the fact that India in general, structurally, right now, has less to gain from RCEP, I think, in its perception. Uh, India... Mm-hmm would have the highest number of tariffs to reduce um, in terms of the major markets that are participating in RCEP. And it's also a highly, highly attractive market for the other negotiating countries. So countries like Japan and South Korea uh, and many ASEAN countries view India as sort of a bonanza for their exports. Uh, so finding that balance, I guess, didn't work out. And then on you know on the more technical side, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but there were a lot of sort of issues in the RCEP negotiations on certain obligations, on um, you know, so-called auto-trigger mechanisms, uh, protective mechanisms for India to take in place, certain measures uh, to slow down the flow of imports after RCEP would come into effect. The other negotiating partners didn't want to incorporate that, so India couldn't have the backstops that it needed. So I think I think the broader story that I'm seeing here with India is that you know Modi right now is unwilling to you know, tear off the Band-Aid on structural reform and absorb some short-term political costs and economic pain. And, and, you know, implementing RCEP would not be easy for India. But over the long term, I do think that the benefits would begin to accrue and India would find itself better incorporated. Because, you know, again, zooming out to the geopolitical level, we now see in India that's largely left out of the two emerging trade architectures in Asia, uh, one being CPTPP, 
Uh, India has a lot of barriers to get to that. It would first have to join APEC uh, to participate in CPTPP. And now with RCEP, uh, so India you know, finds itself uh, sort of an island. It, it, it has the attractive market for many of these countries that do want to trade with it, uh, but it's simply not uh, ready yet for the multilateral picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, just to reinforce that, I mean, I think the debate that you're sort of talking about, which plays out in a lot of these bigger countries, and, and the United States is the other example, right? So we now have two big countries, the United States, you know, withdrawing from uh, the TPP and the CPTPP moving forward. And now, you know, if, if this, if developments continue, India withdrawing uh, now from uh, this agreement, the RCEP and, and that agreement going through. Um, it, it just reinforces the big debate domestically in these countries about uh, short-term costs for certain domestic industries, whether it's you know textile, agriculture, some of the ones that you mentioned, um, and, and the long-term picture, right? Which is that um, you know for India's economic competitiveness, being part of the supply chains and regional trade integration more more uh, generally is something that that's a no-brainer uh, for most of these folks who are looking at the data. But, you know, the the debate between short-term costs and long-term benefits, um, you know, is always something that's very contentious um, um, for these big countries. I, I think the other thing that, that bears noting is, um, it, you know, how the optics of this played out. So you did have India, you know, withdraw from, from, from part of uh, the RCEP negotiations. But essentially now the, the optics of that is such that if this is something that's concluded by 2020, so the joint leader statement that came out mentioned that, you know, that there were tax-based negotiations that were now effectively complete. And if India is removed from these negotiations, you know, could we finally see RCEP uh, negotiated and, and, and commenced uh, in terms of signing by 2020, right? Because as we mentioned in the, in the previous podcast, I think we've had this sort of annual cycle where we say, okay, RCEP is going to be negotiated by the end of this year. Um, so whether 2020 will finally break that cycle. I mean, the reason why that's significant is now you have uh, Vietnam uh, that's going to be the chairman of, of ASEAN uh, next year. Um, and Vietnam is a country which has, uh, you know, is now party to all the various sort of permutations of trade agreements. It's part of CPTPP, it's part of RCEP, and it's also negotiated the EU-Vietnam free trade agreement. So it does give, um, on the positive side, if you look at it, Hanoi the opportunity to secure an economic win next year by saying, hey, this RCEP negotiations were finalized under Vietnam's chairmanship. And I think the Vietnamese in particular are very keen on having that economic win because I think they they noticed that um, without that, there's going to be a lot of focus on security issues, uh, you know, one of which is the South China Sea issue, which we've talked about you know repeatedly on this podcast as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Vietnam has really been uh, pulling a lot of weight, I mean, disproportionately on on uh, encouraging free trade in Asia. Really, you know, Vietnam and Japan, uh, I would say, outside of mm -hmm. China, have been playing a really important role here. I mean, when when the Trump administration withdrew from the TPP, it was primarily the Vietnamese uh, who saw that as, uh, a, a you know, I mean, all of the TPP countries saw it as a huge blow to the effort, but the Vietnamese in particular took it, took it quite hard. So, uh, Vietnam certainly, I think, positioned itself weird here. The other thing I'll, I'll say on optics is, you know, you talked to, we talked a little bit earlier about the optics of sort of India saying that it wants to act east, but then pulling out of RCEP. Uh, it's interesting that in the official Indian statement, you know, India emphasized that it negotiated in good faith. Uh, India wants to emphasize that it's withdrawing from RCEP primarily because its interests could not be addressed, not because it's necessarily 
an obstructionist on, on trade. I mean, that is commonly the perception of India, that it's a very difficult country to work with on multilateral trade um, and, and bilateral trade issues. Uh, but I think India definitely wants it to be seen that it remains involved in, in the, you know, it continues to at least have the intention of acting East. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the withdrawal from RCEP, I think, I think is, you know, I mean, if I had to guess, I would think that New Delhi would probably come to, will probably come to regret this decision. Um, RCEP, if it does lead to greater integration and India does decide that in the future, it would be interested in joining because it's more competitive economically. I mean, I think certainly the Indian economy is destined to become more competitive. The question is over what time frame does India become more competitive? Is it a matter of years or decades? But when that happens, um, India simply won't have as much of a rulemaking role uh, in RCEP. If RCEP is negotiated and concluded, India can be brought in in the future. Uh, ch- you know, China and ASEAN have said that. Um, but when that happens, uh, New Delhi certainly won't be able to address uh, some of the issues that it was unwilling to compromise on. Uh, you know, including things like, like I said, uh, data localization, ratchet obligations, uh, auto trigger mechanisms. Uh, so that I think will be a little bit of a missed um, opportunity here. I mean, the other thing is, you know, um, there has been some talk of a U.S.-India bilateral arrangement. That's mm-hmm. certainly been difficult under the Trump administration because of India's running deficit with the United States, which has you know been reduced a little. But um, things like also the removal of um, preferential trade status under GSP um, haven't been positive for that. But uh, you know that. I think a lot of that will depend on whether the Trump administration can actually sustain a second term or even make it to the end of this first term, uh, because negotiating a bilateral arrangement won't be something that will happen overnight, uh, certainly with India. So uh, that's something else to keep an eye on. But, um, you know, let's pivot a little bit and talk about um, CPTPP. We don't we don't um, we haven't really been talking about that because the negotiations have been concluded. The agreement has entered into force. Um, where where do you um, you know what do you make of the the state of uh, the implementation of CPTPP right now and the potential addition of uh, new partner countries, including countries like uh, Indonesia, uh, which have uh, expressed interest in the arrangement? Yeah, I mean, I I think this is the other big conversation because um, if you see RCEP as uh, the agreement where the standards are not very high, but it is more inclusive. Uh, you have the CPTPP where the opposite dynamics are true, which is that the standards are much higher, but because of that, you have more of an exclusive grouping of countries. And the hope was that initially under the initial iteration with TPP, the United States being part of it, that other countries like Indonesia, Thailand um, would be part of this agreement because it is, you know, it includes the United States, which is a big market. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the U.S. Uh, removal from the agreement under the Trump administration has taken the wind out of the sails for, for that part of it. Um, but I, I, th- I still think there's a lot of interest in CPTPP just simply because it is an agreement which, relative to RCEP, you know, does have a lot of far-reaching implications in terms of labor rights, intellectual property. The, the standards just, you know, really are much more significant than what we're seeing um, under RCEP. Um, and so in addition to the countries that you mentioned, you know, big countries in Southeast Asia, like like Indonesia, Thailand, um, I think one of the other, um, you know, big points of uh, that are part of the conversation is, will we get um, other actors, you know, most notably, you know, Taiwan has been floated as, uh, you know, part of this conversation about whether you could get Taiwan, which is an economy, but not, you know, officially recognized because of uh, the one China policy as being, you know, a country or a nation state in that respect. 
um, join this uh, agreement. And of course, the bigger part of this conversation is whether the United States in another administration or in a second Trump administration might enter back into uh, the CPTPP to actually uh, you know, sort of bring the benefits that we talked about before. Obviously, this this would be given the Trump administration and President Trump's own personal inclinations, much likely, much less likely under the a second Trump administration than another administration. But the fact that we have a U.S. election that's coming up next year, um, you know, really does bring to fore the question about whether we'll ever see the United States uh, rejoin this agreement. Because I think of the various agreements that we're talking about. Um, in the Indo-Pacific, the CPTPP, um, you know, really is the the sort of big uh, agreement that we're talking about. And as you pointed out before, um, we really do have to, you know, credit Japan uh, for keeping uh, some of these agreements alive. Um, you know, whether it's RCEP, where Japan has played a role uh, on several occasions, actually, in keeping the negotiations alive, or CPTPP, um, you know, Tokyo has really played a, a big role in keeping these negotiations up when some of the bigger countries, uh, whether it's the United States or India, um, have withdrawn or or expressed reservations on the agreement. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, TPP remains very much a hot-button political issue in U.S. domestic politics. Uh, none of the Democratic candidates, at least the frontrunners, are willing to stake their necks out on committing to rejoin the agreement, uh, you know, mm-hmm. even, even as there's increasing concern now about competition with China, uh, TPP remains or CPTPP remains sort of beyond the pale and political discourse. So we'll have to see. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that's another thing to watch for. The only other thing I'll mention is, you know, the United Kingdom, of course, uh, has expressed interest mm-hmm. in joining uh, CPTPP in a post-Brexit world. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I certainly don't have the qualifications to talk about what's going on with Brexit at this point. Um, I'm sure there's other podcasts out there that can do a much better job of that. Um, <laughs> but uh Moving on, I guess, finally to uh, the United States and China. Uh, so a bit of a uh, unexpected development in November with the cancellation of the upcoming APEC summit, which was supposed to provide the set piece or the backdrop to the signing of an interim or so-called phase one trade agreement. Um, of course, you know, at this point, if you've been following the trade war, you probably know better than to actually stake out any decision making on the news cycle because things tend to fall apart at the last minute. Uh, Right now, it looks like the phase one deal will involve both sides pulling back certain tariffs, uh, including China pulling back retaliatory tariffs on U.S. moves. But the question is, is the United States even capable of pulling back on tariffs? Or will that, you know, inherently be framed as the United States backing down before China addresses the entirety of issues that are on the U.S.-China trade dispute agenda? So I think that's the big question. China is certainly pushing for um, as many tariffs as possible to be pulled back. And I think, you know, that would be seen as a pretty significant win for uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping if he's able to do that. Uh, But a lot of this, I think, hinges also on the December 15th deadline, which is the next Mm -hmm. deadline for the um, the next round of tariffs that are that are scheduled. So the U.S. would scrap those on about 156 billion worth in uh, Chinese imports. Um, but from there, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's still quite uncertain what exactly this phase one agreement is going to look like. Uh, right now, the markets, at least here in the United States and, and around the world are, you know, if you follow the money, it seems like people are mostly expecting this deal to find conclusion uh, by the end of the year. Um, and, you know, if it if it doesn't, then I think we might see the old trade trade war news cycle repeat itself where a deal falls apart markets tank inevitably momentum begins to build towards another deal and uh, we do the circle all over again 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, and I think that there is the sense that, um, you know, this phase one deal between the United States and China, whether it's, you know, the extent of the rollback of, of tariffs is, is debatable in terms of the specifics, but there does seem to be, as you pointed out, um, you know, a need for both countries to find at least an interim form of compromise, even though the bigger differences uh, remain to be resolved. So, I mean, the, the the DC dynamics here, you know, matter, right? So President Trump is in, in, in the middle of um, uh, uh, a sort of effort by uh, Democrats uh, to move forward with impeachment. So domestically, I, I think he's quite preoccupied with, with other issues. Uh, we've got the U.S. elections coming up uh, next November and the run-up to uh, those elections. And then, of course, you know, the the optics of having uh, major tariffs that would impact consumers going to effect in December 15th during a holiday period, right? Effectively in, in the middle of, you know, the Thanksgiving period and right before Christmas, uh, you know, I don't think would look good for the Trump administration. So I think there is a sense uh, from both sides that they need to compromise on, on some level. Um, and I think on the part of uh, China, uh, I do think that the Chinese would want to find some sort of economic uh, accommodation, even though I, I think they continue to remain uh, a little bit skeptical about whether they would be able to address the fundamental issues that the Trump administration has with China, right? So as, as we've seen from speeches from uh, Mike Pence and, and Secretary Mike Pompeo, um, you know, the, the, there are fundamental issues that transcend uh, the economic uh, priorities and deals that we're talking about, whether it's security issues, human rights issues, um, and so I, I think, you know, irrespective of whether we find a phase one deal or not, um, you know, this idea of U.S.-China competition um, will, will be something that will stay with us for for quite a while, at least within this administration. Yep. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, the U.S.-China disputes are much bigger than a trade war at this point. Uh, so I think um, that's probably a good note to close on, Prashant. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good. All right, great. Well, thanks a lot for joining me. Uh, I think it was good to uh, do a sort of zoomed out overview of trade issues if listeners like more podcasts in this format we're happy to do that just send us a note going forward uh so if you like what you heard make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes you can do that on itunes google play spotify any other number of podcast providers and if you like the podcast but you haven't yet left us a review uh please do so it really it really does help and before we close just a note from our sponsor this episode of the asia geopolitics podcast is brought to you by diplomat risk intelligence or dri DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering this region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.